You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. HIV-associated sensory neuropathy, or HIV-SN, is the most common peripheral nerve disorder complicating HIV infection. Current treatments for chronic pain and suffering are quite inadequate. Perhaps cannabis is the answer. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Donald Abrams, Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. He is Chief of Hematology and Oncology at San Francisco General Hospital and Director of Clinical Programs at UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Dr. Abrams is here to talk about his 2007 article in American Academy of Neurology on the use of cannabis in painful HIV-associated sensory neuropathy. Well, that's a, full, that's a mouthful, Dr. That is Abrams. a mouthful, yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about it. I'm in private practice in Illinois. I've never seen it. How common is it? What is it? Is it like other neuropathies seen in cancer patients? Well, uh, HIV-related peripheral neuropathy is seen in probably about 30% of patients living with HIV. In a percentage of patients, it's due to the virus itself causing some sort of inflammatory response in the peripheral nerves. And in some patients, more in the past than now, it was related to the use of particular antiretroviral drugs, the dideoxynucleosides, DDI, DDC, and D4T, were particularly the ones that were related to the development of this condition, which is characterized by numbness, tingling, sometimes pain, uh, in the lower, more often than upper extremities, usually bilaterally symmetrical. So what, what kind of treatments have been used in the past to treat this neuropathy, and, and, and do they work well? Or, yeah, or... nothing has really been shown to work well. People sometimes use opioids. Uh, they don't really work too well, and, you know, these patients are now living for uh, quite a long time, patients with HIV who are controlled on their antiretrovirals. So Many people don't want to get started on that slippery slope of using opioids. What about Neurontin or Lyrica or Elevil? Yeah, Elevil in a placebo-controlled trial did not show much benefit. That was the same study in which uh, acupuncture was compared to sham acupuncture, and the conclusion was that neither worked because 50% of the patients in both arms achieved some effect after 14 weeks. So the conclusion was made that acupuncture didn't work, I think, now that I know a bit more about traditional Chinese medicine, the real conclusion there was that there's no such thing as sham acupuncture. Mm-hmm. We've generally settled on Neurontin uh, as the drug of choice in this condition, and patients uh, titrate their Neurontin dose uh, up to effect. But some patients uh, have pronounced CNS effects from the Neurontin, and there's also concerns about possible drug-drug interactions. So, you know, we still do need other alternatives. Let's talk about the study you did. I'm wondering how you came up with the idea, and more amazing to me is how did you get a million dollars in funding? Oh, well, first of all, the idea came up from basically the fact that preclinical evidence suggests that cannabinoids may be useful in neuropathic pain models in, in animals. There's a rat model, the tail on the hot plate demonstrates that pre-treating animals with cannabis allows their tail to remain for a longer time on a hot plate, and that's felt to be a model for neuropathic pain. That's That plus anecdotal reports from patients uh, suggested that uh, this might be something that we want to look into, again, because we didn't really have very effective therapies for our patients with HIV-related peripheral neuropathy. I previously had a million dollars from the National Institute on Drug Abuse to do a study of the safety 
of smoked marijuana in HIV patients on protease inhibitor antiretroviral regimens. And in that study, we demonstrated that there was no negative interaction between cannabis and protease inhibitors or cannabis in the immune system that led to any loss of control of the HIV virus. So with that as a background, we then applied to the University of California Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, who did fund this study. And I guess you're right, it was for approximately a million dollars over the three years. So how many people were in the study and what kind of objective data was used? Well, we started out just to determine whether or not there was going to be an effect with a small 16-patient pilot study. Uh, Being an oncologist, I'm always taught uh, one of the rules I learned many years ago was that if we have a cancer drug and nobody responds out of 15 patients, then the chances that this drug has a 20% response rate is less than 5%. So so I use a 16-patient sample size uh, as a baseline. And if patients were going to have a response, then from this pilot study, we could calculate what the size of a follow-on randomized placebo-controlled trial should be. So to make this more rigid study, in addition to asking these patients what happened to the effect to the, their neuropathic pain, we also created an experimental pain situation in the patients by heating a rectangular patch on their forearm uh, to 40 degrees Celsius, and then after five minutes of heating, applying topical capsaicin cream. Capsaicin is what makes chili peppers hot. Right. And when you do this heat capsaicin model, which was uh, widely utilized by my pain collaborators, Corinne Peterson and Michael Robotham from the Pain Clinical Research Center here at UCSF, is you create an area around the rectangle of allodynia and hypesthesia so that patients have a painful reaction to a non-painful stimulus and they're also more hyperreactive to other stimuli. And then we map that area with the patient looking away from their forearm uh, before and after smoking. So this gives us a much more objective, if you will, anchor for the effect on our neuropathic pain, particularly in the pilot study where everybody was getting active cannabis. Dr. Abrams, I'm wondering if you've been able to extrapolate these results and apply them to other patient populations in disease states. Let me just go back to the results sure. for a second. So in our, the other thing that we did to make our study very rigid, in addition to the experimental pain model, was we set the bar high. And we chose as a success somebody who had a greater than 30% reduction in their baseline pain. And in our first 16 patients in the pilot, we did see nice responses, and we allowed our uh, calculation for a placebo-controlled randomized trial of 50 patients. And we designed that and did that very similar in that most of the patients also underwent the experimental pain model with the heat capsaicin, so we had this more objective anchor. And again, what we found was that compared to smoking placebo cannabis, those who smoked the actual cannabis, again, supplied by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, had more relief of their chronic neuropathic pain, and very consistent with that, we saw decreases in the experimental pain model. So we concluded uh, in our study that smoke cannabis uh, was effective, and when we did a number-needed-to-treat analysis, uh, it showed that cannabis was quite similar in efficacy uh, to gabapentin, uh, although we didn't compare them head-to-head from other studies of gabapentin in peripheral neuropathy, the number needed to treat 
was very similar to what we saw from our cannabis study in patients with HIV-related painful peripheral neuropathy. Can we extrapolate to other neuropathic pain syndromes? You know, that's an excellent question. I, I doubt that people would allow us to, especially when we're dealing with a therapy that's as controversial as medicinal cannabis. Mm-hmm. I think you could extrapolate it to terminal cancer patients. They might allow that versus just using someone with your a garden variety neuropathy who's a young person. I'm wondering if, you know, since cannabinoids help with pain reduction, why why not use them more and try and get away from opiates, which have enormous side effects, when cannabinoids have a lot of beneficial side effects in, in cancer patients and AIDS patients? I think that's a rhetorical question, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, we live in a country where uh, we're fighting a war on drugs, and the main target of that war, ironically, is is this medicine. So it leads me to a bigger societal question. You know, why are we so phobic against using marijuana? Is it is it because that the big pharmaceutical companies can't make any money off of it? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that one either, but, but I will say that, you know, cannabis has been a medicine in society, in the world, for 5,000 years, and it only has not been a medicine in the United States for 65 years. Interesting. Up until 1942, physicians could write prescriptions, actually, for cannabis products for their patients. Hmm. So what happened? It was really the, the work of one man, Harry Anslinger, actually, who was the first chief of the Federal Narcotics Bureau, who had been a prohibitionist and was a bit of a racist and felt that uh, widespread use of cannabis among jazz musicians, <laughs> who were usually uh, south of the border, Latinos or African Americans uh, would lead to increased crime and mental illness. The slippery and, slope. Yeah, that was it. Unbelievable. Yep. In addition to treating the, the neuropathy with the cannabis, have you used cannabis or looked at it in, in treating the wasting syndromes in HIV patients or, or failure to thrive patients with cancer? You know, we originally, with my work with cannabis, started as trying to investigate the benefit of cannabis in patients with HIV wasting back in 1994. The government, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, is the only legal source of cannabis for research in this country. And the National Institute on Drug Abuse has a congressional mandate to study substances of abuse only as substances of abuse. So when I applied twice Mm -hmm. to get cannabis from them for the AIDS wasting syndrome, I was denied, uh, even by peer review, but the real reason is that NIDA is not able, or then was not able, to supply cannabis for efficacy studies. We then established in California the University of California Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research, uh, which really forced NIDA, if you will, to develop a mechanism to supply cannabis to investigators who were peer-reviewed and funded by other agencies. And that's how we were able to do our neuropathy study. I'm curious how a physician in California writes you know, a prescription for cannabis. I've, I've never written one. Yeah, no, nobody can write a prescription for cannabis. What we do is we can recommend that a patient consider trying cannabis and document that in our notes mm-hmm. and then send the patient with a letter either to the state, which issues an identification card, or they can take the letter to a cannabis buyer's club, uh, which will then call the physician to confirm that the physician has written a letter, but it doesn't prescribe cannabis. It says if this patient chooses to utilize cannabis in their uh, treatment regimen, I will continue to follow them. Dr. Abrams, we're almost about out of time. Wondering if you'd like to add anything else about the use of cannabis for neuropathy or any other 
indications? Well, I'd just like to say that we are now doing a study that is funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse where we're taking patients with pain who are on an opioid analgesic, either MS-Contin or OxyContin, and we're admitting them to our general clinical research center and having them vaporize cannabis for five days and measuring the disposition kinetics or the pharmacokinetics, if you will, of the opioids uh, before and after smoking or vaporizing cannabis. Because again, there's preclinical evidence and anecdotal evidence that cannabis may lead to being able to get away with lower dosages of opiates for longer periods of time. And certainly opioids are associated with nausea that may also be alleviated by the use of cannabis. So, you know, it is a useful medicine. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the show. We've been talking with Dr. Donald Abrams. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at ReachMD. And thanks for listening.